pony coming into it. It's not. Maybe I'll try. Maybe that'll be my challenge for the day. Um, Last week, if you were here, we talked about how uh, God not only works through our circumstances and our gifts, but he connects us to each other. And we actually spent time writing our names and our favorite scriptures uh, on pieces of quilt and tying those together to form uh, a, a larger quilt. And, and the idea being that you and I are, have our lives woven together by God and his spirit so that we become something greater than the sum of its parts. That the whole of the church and the body and the family is designed that we complete one another, that we make one another better and stronger and do kingdom work better as a hundred people working together than as a hundred individuals doing things on our own. And that we are designed to need one another. And this week, what I want to do is acknowledge that that's not always easy. It's not always easy to love each other. It's not always easy to be connected to one another. It's not always easy to try and and get a shared vision and get a bunch of people moving in the same direction. And and often people hurt each other's feelings. People are uh, cruel to one another. Uh, People get into arguments. Uh, Divisions occur. And what do we as Christians do when we, we are told that we need to be weaving our lives together, but the stitches just keep coming undone as we try and get along with each other? The reality is that we live in a world where marriages end in divorce, where families are generationally pulled apart, where churches split, where nations go to war, where things aren't as they are supposed to be. Conflict is part of the human experience. At some time, we constantly come into situations where what I desire for my life is in conflict with what you desire for your life, and there's a tension there. And we've got to decide who gets our way. And when one of us gets their way and the other one doesn't, how do we repair the relationship? And we're going to be looking in Scripture and exploring today, uh, and really for a couple weeks, what it means to be peacemakers in a world that is so filled with so much conflict. What it means to be people that, that actively bring peace into this conflict-filled world. Because it's always been uh, filled with conflict. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and His Spirit hovered above the waters. And then God starts creating And he brings the land and the plants and the animals. And and ultimately, he brings humans into this good creation. And once he brings humans there, he gives them a choice. And from the very moment that humans had a choice, things started going wrong. And he tells them, you'll have everything you need. And you'll live in harmony with me and one another and with the creation. And it's all going to go great. All you have to do is not eat the fruit from this one tree. Which immediately, of course in the story, I don't know how long it was in in time, gets eaten. And from that moment, God shows up and he says, why are you hiding? And they immediately start blaming one another and they even blame God. And the harmonious relationships that existed for all of creation up until that moment, however long it had been, are destroyed. Blaming the serpent, blaming their spouse, blaming their God. God, you're the one that put her here. Everything was fine until you did that. Things are breaking. They have children after they're kicked out of the garden and Cain and Abel get in a dispute that is fueled by jealousy as to which one of them is presenting an offering that is more pleasing to God. And the jealousy turns to murder. 
Violence breaks through into the very first family in all of creation as one son murders the other one out of jealousy of God's favor. And it's only a few chapters later that, that God looks down in the world in the time of Noah and he says that every inclination in the hearts of humans was all evil all the time. Violence has become the norm. Uh, as, the, as Cain goes and builds the first cities, it's said that he's given a mark and the mark uh, is upon him and, and his descendants and they become violent and, and filled with a desire for revenge. So God floods the entire world and he floods the world and he only saves a few families out of it and he does so to reset things. And here's the reset. When they get off the boat, uh, we always think about God's promise to not flood the earth again, but there's also instructions. So Genesis chapter 9 and verse 5, right after they get off of the boat, he says, uh, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then God makes his covenant with Noah and his, his sons. These first chapters of Genesis make it clear that we're bent towards conflict. God has to do a reset after the flood because people have gotten so violent. They're just, when I get jealous, I'm going to kill you. When I get offended by you, I'm going to kill you. Violence is the order of the day. And God tells Noah and his sons after the flood, this can't go on anymore. You've got to find other ways to resolve your arguments, to resolve your jealousy, to resolve the, the anxieties and problems that are coming up in your life. And so from now on, I'm going to hold accountable those who use violence to solve their problems. What's incredible is that it seems to be something that God didn't know he, he was going to have to give to humans in the beginning. But humans are so bent on violence and destruction that he's got to reset the world with a flood and then reset this family by saying, stop. Stop with the conflict. Stop with the violence change the way that this world works by choosing to make peace and resolve things rather than constantly choosing violence. Last night I was uh, watching uh, the local news, um, which I almost never do, but it came on after basketball and I was feeling lazy, so I just let it roll. And uh, as I was watching it, uh, Brent, Brent Hensley, on KOCO, he's the, the president and editor of the, the news. And he came on and he had this editorial segment. And he talked about how uh, someone on their staff uh, at the news program this week after the two mass shootings in California last week uh, was sitting at the table uh, with their young child, their daughter, and she said, oh no, another one. Another one. Not feeling not empathetic, just kind of going, ugh, another one. So many of us this week uh, watched the, the beating in Memphis take place, and we saw that happen, and we went, oh, no, another one. And we live in a world where violence has become so common. 
as a way of resolving whatever things are going on in people's lives, that, that we can become desensitized Word. to it. Yeah. And as Christians, we have to make sure not only that we not become desensitized, that this is not the way God desires the world to be. Right. We need to, when we see people using violence to resolve conflict, say this is not what God wants. And we need to continue in every way that we can to pray that God continues to break into this world and reduces violence and solves conflict. Now, God has a plan for that prayer to be answered, and it's his church. You and I are the plan to bring peacemaking and resolution and conflict solving into the world. Now, you and I probably don't have the means uh, to transform our entire country, but what we all need to do, we talked about this some last year, is what we do is we need to draw a, f a circle around our feet and say, I'm in charge of everything in this circle, and as for me and everything in this circle, we will pursue peace and not violence. Right. We will pursue resolution and not conflict. And then we can be like Joshua and draw a slightly larger circle around our families it says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will be people of peace in our home. Our house will be a house of peace. And when people come into it, they will be impacted by that. And then our church can draw a circle around our church and say, the world may be filled with conflict and anxiety, but this church is a house of peace. It's a house of love. It's a house that tells each other the truth and loves each other through it to the other side. Now, we're going to have arguments. We're going to have conflicts. The only way that we could be a church of people that don't ever have conflict is if we were faking our relationships with each other. But if we're real and we're going to live and love our way through the, the life that God's called us to live as kingdom people, there's going to be times that we have conflict and we have hurt feelings and we have difficulty. So in Matthew 18, the passage that was read earlier, I want to read this because Jesus knew that people coming together are always going to have problems with one another. And so Jesus is teaching and he says, listen, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We've already gone after attorneys today. We'll throw tax collectors in there too. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Yeah. And so Jesus says, <coughs> here's the thing. If one of you has sinned, and there's, there's different ways to kind of think about this, I think. Some of it is actual having sin in your life, but some of it is just wounding one another in the natural proceeding of being in relationship. We hurt each other, and we need to repair relationships. Or maybe it is that we have a sin in our life that, that, that we've kind of just embraced, and it's time for our brothers and sisters to come to us and say, hey, we've got to talk about this. You're headed in the wrong direction. 
The right direction is walking towards God, and you're living in such a way that you're walking away from God, and I want to walk with you. What does that mean for, for you to get back where you're walking in the right direction towards God? And, and he doesn't say, start by getting a posse. Get 10 or 15 Christians together and just have, have a massive intervention and shame them incredibly. He's, he says, listen, if minor surgery can work, do that. Don't jump to removing someone's arm if you can put a Band-Aid on their finger. And so he goes, he says, listen, here's what you need to do. When there's something that's going wrong in a relationship with your brother or sister in Christ, you go to them, just, just you, and you talk to them. And you said, hey, what does it look like for you to get back where you're headed in the right direction? And if they say, I'm not interested in that, then you go get two or three other brothers and sisters that love them and care about them and that are also doing their work to walk towards God. And, and you come to them and you say, listen, we care about you. And our inclinations are, are to either do nothing and just let them go in the wrong direction or to be the kind of people that overreact and do way too much at the beginning and cause offense and shame. Uh, or we make one attempt and then we're like, boy, I tried. Now it's dust my sandals off. This is on them now. But Jesus says, keep escalating. Not because you want to punish them, not because you want to discipline them. The goal is to get them headed in the right direction towards God, which is goodness for them. It is desiring salvation for them. And so the work that you're doing is not intended to push them down. It's intended to lift them up and to build them up. But you've got to go to them and do the work. What's interesting, and, and I really, one of the things that I love about the New Testament is that over and over again, these writers, these missionaries, these apostles, these disciples are bad at following the instructions that they're giving us. And that feels great. It's good that they include the stories where they struggle to get along with each other. It's good that they include the struggles where they have to try and sort things out. So in the letter to the, the church in Galatians, uh, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Galatians, and he says, this is towards the end of the letter, uh, there's been a conflict in Galatians. They've had arguments and problems, and a couple of the, the, the older women have been arguing about their genealogies and which one of them has a better genealogy, and it's caused the church to start taking sides. Because a lot of arguments that we have aren't about the most important things, but the unimportant things can become major issues when they become divisive to us. So Paul says to this church that's going through this conflict and there's this taking of sides. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently gently but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted the temptation there is to exalt yourself and those of you who are paying attention know that i merged philippians and galatians a minute ago because i went off my notes footnote that you don't have to come tell me afterwards so but in galatians they are also having conflict it's over other things and he tells them 
Gently try to restore each other. Watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. And so in the dealing with someone else's sin, you can be tempted to exalt yourself. Again, it's always about you don't confront someone to build me up and push them down. It's being willing to come down to where they are so that you can lift them up. It's this willingness to have tough conversations. It's this willingness to confront with tenderness and with love and with humility. And when we do that, it opens the door for us to work through things, to repair relationships, to repair sin and, and bring about repentance. Does that mean that this is easy? This is Paul's instruction. If he's giving us this instruction, surely he's always good at working out his problems, right? No. no. In Acts chapter 15, Saul and Barnabas are the missionary duo. They've gone and, and done mission work in many places. They've been beaten and left for dead. They've had successful mission efforts. They've had unsuccessful mission efforts. Uh, but they've been together through all kinds of stuff. And they're getting ready to go back out on the road and do another mission trip. And it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. He says, Let, let's do a, a, a reunion tour. Let's get back on the road. Let's go back where we, we, we've been before. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, this is back in Acts 13, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Luke softens what's going on here a little bit. Paul and Barnabas have stuck together through imprisonment, beatings, failed mission work, all this stuff. They're sticking together. They cannot get through this conflict. Luke's language is they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Paul and Barnabas are so in disagreement about whether or not John Mark should come that they can't go on the mission work together. They've got to split up. They part ways and go on two mission trips. Barnabas with John Mark and Paul with Silas. This is the same guy, Paul, who writes uh, that make his joy complete by becoming like Christ, who empties himself, becoming a servant, that you should put the interests of others ahead of yourself. You, Paul, does that include letting John Mark come on your mission trip? And Paul says, no, this doesn't fall under that. I'm not going with Barnabas if he's taking John Mark. Why? Because he abandoned us last time. Paul, aren't you going to forgive him? He's not going to do that again. I'm not taking a chance. He doesn't get another chance. And Paul refuses to let John Mark go on the trip with him, so much so that they form two mission trips and go in different directions. Now, does the kingdom end up being blessed by having two missionary journeys instead of one? Yes. Can God work through even our worst moments? Yes. But is Paul doing a good job of forgiving John Mark and giving him another chance? I don't think so. 
they have divided and not been able to maintain unity as they move through doing mission work to call people to be better at doing what they just failed to do. That's the reality of church, though, isn't it? The reality of church is that week after week, we have people come up here and, and invite you into the table of Jesus Christ and proclaim the word of the Lord to you. And song leaders lead us in worship and, and teachers that are teaching our children who during the week have things that they need to apologize for to the people they're around. And they have people they need to forgive during the week because of things that went wrong in, in the midst of being humans around each other. The nature of community is that we bump into each other a lot. And we have to be able to do this work of getting along and doing better. That's not Paul's only conflict. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, uh, there's the incident that's the actual divisive thing in the book of Galatians, where Paul goes up to Peter and they get in a big argument. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 11. When Cephas, which is Peter's other name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is on the wrong side of Paul's temper yet again, this time because he is in alignment with Peter and some who have come from James, who are saying, yeah, yeah, Gentiles can be disciples of Jesus, but they need to eat over there. Yeah, yeah, Gentiles can be uh, followers of Jesus Christ. They can get baptized, but not in my house. So some of those old prejudices continue to echo forward in the early church. So when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And he confronts him to his face in front of a crowd. Paul's making a scene on purpose because he believes that, that Peter's actions have publicly led others astray, and he wants to confront him so that his public conf confrontation can call other people back into right behavior. But it's not what Jesus said to do. It's not taking Peter aside in private and saying, hey man, you're living like a Gentile and telling Gentiles all of this stuff. Can you stop that and, and get on board with my plan and do this other thing? No. And maybe that happened, and it's not in the letter, but, but Paul doesn't tell us about that. What he tells us is, I made a scene and confronted Peter to his face in front of everybody to expose what was wrong in our community. And God worked through that to bring a greater unity to the Galatian church, to bring Peter into repentance. And Barnabas, who had been persuaded, presumably also had to repent but something incredible happens later in the New Testament uh, in regards to some of these tensions that Paul has with others. Later, in one of his letters, in Colossians 4, Paul commends John Mark for his work in the Christian community. John Mark helped him in Rome when he was writing Philemon. Paul told Timothy to bring John Mark with him to visit during his imprisonment. He's writing to Timothy when he's in jail, and he says, listen, when you come to encourage me, just bring John Mark. He'd grown 
He'd learned. He gave forgiveness to John Mark that he was unwilling to give in Acts. By the end of his life, he had perceived or he had pursued and, and given reconciliation. Their relationship had been mended. And this has to be the goal of Christianity. It has to be the goal of us living in community. Is even when we have to part ways for a while to get some healing done after some woundedness, the goal has to always be that eventually I say, listen, you really upset me when you and I disagreed about that thing, but at some point later in life, I want to be able to write to you and say, man, I could really use a visit with you right now because you're a blessing. You're a blessing to me. And that the things that we overcome make our relationships stronger. I mean, which marriage is stronger? The one that is, is a few years old and has never been tested by conflict or the one that's been over the rocks, that's been dragged through the mud, that's been through some tough things, some losses, some conflicts, and comes out still close? That marriage is stronger because they put the work in and they've grown from it. And when little things come up in a, in a marriage that's been through a lot, they look at each other and go, Boy, we know we're getting through this because this is nothing compared to that. Remember that year? We're going to get through this. And so churches, Christians that build these muscles of tough conversations and giving forgiveness and maintaining unity get stronger over time. They work through things, and it, what feels like low-level conflict at times is the building of unity if you're giving good forgiveness and repairing relationships as you go. What does that look like? Here's where we're going to end with today, and we'll pick up next week. When you consider whether or not you have forgiven somebody or not, you need to ask yourself if you're willing to make the four promises of forgiveness. The four promises of forgiveness. Here's what they are. Number one, and, and again, when you say, I forgive you, do you forget what happened? Not always. Those echoes of past hurts are part of how we live. And so we always struggle with this idea of how do you forgive and not forget, and you still have this, this stuff from the past. Here's how you do it. These are the four promises that you need to give someone when you forgive them. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not let it consume my thoughts. I won't think about it as I'm going to bed. I won't think about it when I wake up. I will not dwell on this in a way that prevents me from having a good relationship with you. Number two, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Don't nudge your neighbor too much here. This happens more, more often in marriage than anything else, right? Where you say, I forgive you but I'm going to keep this as ammunition for the next time. I'm going to keep this as ammunition for an unrelated thing later. When you come in and complain to me about something, I'm going to go, well, what about the time that you and I just bring up the incident that I said I forgave you for to win a new argument? If you really forgive someone, one of your promises is you need to not bring this incident up and use it against the person in the future. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Now, are there times that you need safe spaces to go to your accountability people and your loved ones in a way that, that is healthy for your relationships with people? Yeah. Are there counselors and ministers in times you need safe spaces to talk to people about things you're going through? Yes. But are there times that we just want to gossip and make someone look bad? 
for our own pleasure. That's what we're talking about. When you're gossiping about something that you've given forgiveness for so that people think more highly of you and less highly than the other person in the incident that we're talking about. Forgiveness means not telling people the gossip about your past stuff. And the fourth promise is this, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Forgiveness involves healing. Now, some wounds leave scars. Those are still there. But the healing, the whole healing of a wound allows you to fully live into that relationship in ways that you could before. And sometimes you come out stronger because you gave forgiveness and got through stuff. So these promises, when you give them, strengthen the future relationship in spite of the things you've forgiven in the past. And it grows the weave between you and others. It grows the wovenness that God has between you and the church, you and your family, you and your spouse, you and your coworkers and neighbors. Forgiveness has the power to strengthen unity and prevent division when division was there just the other day. God works through it. And so in the world and Satan and, and our own evil nature that is inclined towards violence pulls at the seams of our connectedness. God wants us to weave back together. God wants us to heal. God wants us to do the work. God wants us to give forgiveness. But how can I forgive them because, with the thing that they did? Because Christ forgave you when you were still an enemy to God so that you might be saved. And as Lee said earlier, he went first so that we could go second. It's our turn to be the sacrifice, to be the one who gives forgiveness when we want everything else, because Jesus did it first so we could do it next. We're going to keep talking about this the next couple weeks, but if you need to respond this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing. Your bird.